Welcome to the Sanction Space Podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. And today we are sitting in a very busy hall with people walking around outside us. And it's already been described to me as the Mad Max style of podcasting. So a little bit different to normal. We're at the Hollywood Conference, which is incorporating the Global Sanction Summit. So the world of sanctions movers and shakers and other illicit experts have descended onto Florida. And one of those with me today is Matt Swag. Matt's Senior Director of Policy at FDD Action. This is a non-partisan advocacy defense of democracies organization. And the reason really matters here is he's had 18 years on the Hill working across a range of areas, but specifically with the House of Foreign Affairs Committee, sanctions, illicit finance. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us here in Hollywood. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be with ACAMS. So look, let's jump into some of these things. We're going to talk around just sort of the congressional sanctions landscape, which obviously also moves into illicit finance as well. As we're looking to explore this world of global sanctions, and there's a lot of sanctions out there, just how influential is the Congress legislative architecture? You know, how important is it? I'd argue that it's very, very influential, but it all depends on ultimately how Congress puts it together. You know, remember, all of the executive branches, sanctions actions ultimately stem from congressional authorities. And I group them into two types of authorities. One, general authorities permitting the administration to take uh, broad-based plenary action against specific targets. Two examples of those are the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which provides the administration the authority to block property broadly based on the declaration of a na- or a continuation or expansion of a national emergency. The second example I would raise is the Export Control Reform Act, which again provides the administration the plenary ability to regulate export controls. And then there are specific authorities, such as those directing sanctions against Russia, Iran, and Syria, for example. The Congress is always most effective when it strikes the right balance between mandating general policy moves and kind of a general policy direction and allowing for flexibility within those specific authorities. For example, unforeseen events, unintended consequences of ultimately what the Congress puts into place in terms of law, ensuring that the administration can effectively manage those unforeseen consequences. So that kind of puts into perspective Congress's role in providing for the broad-based architecture with respect to sanctions, and that expands also into the anti-financial crime, anti-money laundering space as well. So is there a big difference between how congressional sanctions differ to those imposed by the president? Are they similar? Are there differences? Do they combine? Well, there is a considerable amount of overlap. But at the end of the day, I always like to describe Congress as writing in pen and the administration writing in pencil. What Congress ultimately puts down in the law often has to be changed by law, and it's a very arduous, long and kind of resource-intensive process, whereas the administration, based on the plenary authorities, broad-based authorities that I discussed earlier, can change and can modify and can be nimble. So I think a combination of the two result in kind of effective sanctions, anti-money laundering, uh, well, sanctions policy. That's where I have sat, and that's where I sat for many years, for almost 18 years, from the congressional side of the House, trying to help 
the committees, help various uh, members, chairmen direct that general policy movement. Do you get a race to impose sanctions? You know, is there a bit of a race which occurs between the administration and presidential sanctions versus the congressional side? Sometimes. Sometimes, right? I mean, if you have competing views when it comes to the general policy direction, yeah, you could see there being a race. You'll sometimes see Congress being deferential to the administration when they're dealing with an issue in which there are, let's just say, the the complexities are manifold. Again, Congress is a very, very limited workforce and a very, very limited size and scale when it comes to their workforce and when it comes to, quite frankly, their absorptive capacity in a number of these issues. I remember being in briefings where we'd have four representatives from relevant committees and about 20 or 30 people from the administration. So, you know, you do have that balance in terms of the ability of the administration to effectively field and deal with the minutia associated with ultimately the implementation through some measures and ultimately the enforcement of sanctions measures, right? Whereas Congress, I think, for the most part, takes that broad view and tries to direct the policy as they see best, but there is an inherent conflict particularly in the foreign policy space between the executive branch and the legislative branch. Yeah. Okay, so let's actually explore a little bit about the movers and shakers, right? Who are they? In the congressional side, you know, who are the important players? I like to describe this as kind of the seen and the unseen in Congress. You know, committees that are typically considered as movers and shakers on sanctions, um, and also to a fair extent on anti-money laundering and export controls, include the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the Senate Banking and House Financial Services Committees. They share jurisdiction. The jurisdictions obviously sometimes don't neatly overlap. So you'll have, for example, in some instances related export controls, you'll have the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate Banking Committee being the primary committees for considering certain issues. That being said, there are what I like to call kind of the unseen committees. You know, these are committees that sometimes have a direct role, sometimes have a secondary role in the development of sanctions or other restrictive measures relating to sanctions. Uh, So, for example, you know, the Ways and Means Committee in the House, usually known for tax writing um, in our system, has actually a a very robust role in uh, trade sanctions, particularly in developing importation sanctions. And you see that kind of across the board. We can even take it back to the old Burma JDAC sanctions where that particular committee required cyclical renewals of import sanctions. Again, not something you necessarily see on the face of it, but definitely below the surface. When it comes to visa denial and visa sanctions, the judiciary committees, not the foreign affairs committees, have the primary responsibility for imposing those types of restrictive measures. But also, for example, when it comes to cryptocurrency legislation and the CFTC, that actually falls to the House and Senate Agriculture Committees. Oh, wow. Agriculture. Not necessarily the Financial Services Committees is kind of would be the general thought process behind it. The Armed Services Committees have an impact on sanctions and restrictive measures through the Chinese military companies' actions, but also they have a very large bill that moves through Congress every year, and you often find sanctions legislation that's been worked on in both the House and the Senate ultimately attached to that specific bill. And finally, the appropriations committees, you know, the committees in our system that actually provide the money and dole out money as opposed to authorizing funding, they have an impact as well. They can include sanctions measures in their own bills. It's happened from time to time. But more specifically, they resource the agencies responsible for ultimately implementing and enforcing 
sanctions, anti-money laundering, and export controls. So there's another dynamic to that as well. So we have a whole plethora of stakeholders here. And, you know, if we look at this sort of very broad group, ranging from agriculture, foreign affairs, you know, it spans a lot of areas. In terms of one of the big themes we're exploring here in Hollywood is what is on the horizon? What should people be preparing for in future sanctions? If we look at the congressional priorities, when it comes to sanctions and indeed illicit finance, you know, mm-hmm. what is sitting there as you know, the big ticket priority issues at the moment? So I would describe what I'm seeing on the Hill right now as grouping them into terms of country-specific and issue-specific sanctions, measures, not necessarily just sanctions. So in the country-specific realm, there is China. And China is going to be very interesting because any restrictive measures that are, or you know, sanctions or restrictive measures that are put into place by the committees that we describe, it's going to fall within the broader context of the debate on the Hill as to whether to impose or to develop additional requirements for inbound uh, foreign investment or establish a new outbound foreign investment regime and, you know, and also deal with the kind of the bigger issues of supply chain reorientation, you know, what has become known on the Hill as, you know, either onshoring or allied shoring. So that's just kind of one very, very interesting example. Of course, Russia remains, and, you know, we've spoken about it at length, that this conference and several other conferences, I mean, Russia sanctions remains an issue of concern for the Hill, particularly as it pertains to gauging the effectiveness of the administration's actions in that realm. And again, as we went back to earlier, that's where you may see Congress beginning to, in, in the near term, Congress beginning to try to push the bounds a little bit further as far as what constitutes the U.S sanctions regime against Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. On issue-specific initiatives, you'll probably see export control reform being spoken about. Remains to be seen as to whether tangible action will be taken in the near term on that. Crypto regulations, right, as you're seeing within the House Financial Services Committee, to include potential anti-money laundering or sanctions compliance measures. And also bribery and corruption, kind of a bribery and corruption focus given the focus of the administration and both and focus of members and senators on both sides of the aisle, be it re-examining gatekeepers or looking for you know the potential expansion of criminal liability for bribery statutes. So let me tease out one more area here with you, and it's around TikTok. Because, you know, it is an interesting one, isn't it, right? It, anybody, it is. with, anybody with teenage children will say what's happening with sanctions and TikTok. But we have seen some, you know, hearings around this. We're seeing, you know, you've already said the real focus around China in Congress. So what might this all lead to? Where do you think we're going? Well, TikTok's actually a very, very interesting case study in congressional behavior when it comes to sanctions and restrictive measures. It reaches across the aisle. Concern over TikTok does. It's a bipartisan issue, but the interest is actually less partisan, less of a partisan breakdown, and more as I like to describe in terms of clustering. So you have you know clusters of particular members that you know regardless of what their you know views on you know X or, or Y domestic issue is, you know they they kind of congregate around their concern of, you know with respect to TikTok, and I think because of that you've seen almost three different types of measures that are now being discussed in Congress. You know. The first is the Bipartisan Senate Restrict Act, which provides the Department of Commerce broad authority, kind of looking at it through the ICT lens, provides Department of Commerce broad authorities to regulate transactions related to ICT, but not specifically TikTok. The other is actually looking directly at TikTok as a sanctions target. And the third is 
actually looking at it through the lens of the Berman Rule, which exempts from the president's authority to impose sanctions, you know, imposing sanctions on telecommunications and companies providing information, you know, it just sanctions on informational exchange for the sake of informational exchange, where they basically look at it and say, this type of data transfer was never envisioned, therefore we're providing clarification on a plenary authority that we've provided to the administration. So it's kind of interesting, you know, you see, you see three different approaches to dealing with TikTok, at least on the Hill, and probably more. But I just kind of want to highlight those as kind of an interesting case study where you have different members and different coalitions coming at it from a different perspective. But the one thing that I would highlight with respect to China, and you've seen in kind of recent weeks and recent months, is the increasing propensity on the Hill to view China through the prism of China-based money laundering organizations and fentanyl precursor flows. And this is, I just highlighted as an area to watch on the Hill because you've seen a real bipartisan reaction to it where, you know, even in committees that are typically known for being fairly combative, you've seen hearings on this particular issue where there is kind of a generalized consensus with respect to the need to effectively address the issue. So that's just one area that I would watch in that space. Matt, thank you. Over the next sort of two and a half plus days, we're going to be looking at all of these issues, you know, and we're going to head back into the main hall really soon now. But I just want to close with one final, very quick question, really. You were on the Hill for 18 years in one capacity or another. What was that like? Did you feel that you were really at the centre of global politics, global foreign affairs? You know, just, or was it actually a lot more mundane than people think. Well, what I always like to describe about the Hill is, you you know, people used to ask me what the typical day was, and I always said there was none. You never quite knew what you were going to encounter on any, any particular day, and that's what made it interesting for so long. As far as being at the center of the policy, I'd say sometimes you were and sometimes you weren't, right? It all kind of depended on the congressional role, but it also depended on, you know, particularly in the sanction space, as to where sanctions fit within your broader strategic paradigm, whether they were a primary instrument of national power, whether they were a secondary instrument of national power, or whether they were relevant at all to the discussion at hand. But yeah, you never quite knew what was going to happen on any given day. So we will draw that. Hopefully we know what's going to happen for the rest of today in terms of the discussions we're we're having. And you're joining us also at some roundtable discussions we're having around sanctions evasion and a whole range of other things. But Matt, can I say thank you very much for joining us here in this very busy booth with lots of people walking past us and waving. It's a great atmosphere (laughs) here in Hollywood. It's been really interesting listening to you around, you know, just giving us the insights around congressional sanctions. I hope listeners have found today's discussion useful. Please do sign up. Please do keep listening and hearing the stories behind sanctions. Matt, thank you very much. Thank you.